Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 29. In time, Small, who never once consulted a data pad or map as we twisted and turned down tiny streets, up publicly accessible stairs to skyways that crossed otherwise unnavigable morasses of machinery, and then down again into tunnel pass-throughs, finally led us along a side street running parallel to the very monorail that I'd traveled upon my first night here. In a blind cul-de-sac off to the left, the van sat waiting. The others were already there. Dell was inside with Larendell. The other two stood nearby, on guard, weapons hidden, but always ready. We all climbed in without comment, but Small received a call just then, and he turned aside to mutter into his hidden mic for a bit. He spoke for a few seconds then severed the connection. Then he waved Larendell out of the car, along with Ellen Wozniak, and took them aside for a few minutes. They stepped around the corner for privacy from, well, I guess from us. After nearly five minutes, they returned, but the two subordinates didn't get back inside. Instead, they grabbed their packs from the rear of the van, along with a few extra weapons, and started off on foot. They took a left out of the cul-de-sac and were immediately gone. Smith, getting in behind the wheel, now that it was clear their driver wasn't coming, gave Alan Small a questioning look. But with a gesture of his hand, really just a few fingers, he indicated that he'd explain later, or so it seemed to me. Whatever it really meant, she started the van and pulled us out onto the main road, opposite the direction her two fellows had taken. They going out for snacks? I posed, hooking a thumb at the retreating backs of the two as we turned. They were just rounding a corner at the end of the block. Well, Griselda's service has gotten so poor lately, Ejok, I had no choice. A man must have his chip chunks, after all. Yeah, that steward is a lazy sot, I agreed, trying to piece out this latest move. Small had been genuinely thrown by my appearance, and even by the deal I'd more or less forced him to take. Of that I was sure. But he wasn't one to stay off balance for long, and I was equally sure that his ambition to acquire it was undiminished. In fact, if his hope had been waning at all from the loss of their yacht, I may have helped rekindle it. The answers I implied I possessed would be called for soon enough. Mr. Small, I... Griselda can't thank you enough for what you're doing, Carmi stated in the silence. Glad to be of service, he replied easily, tossing a quick sparkle of his bright blue eyes over his shoulder. Though we're not home free yet. She returned his smile, but then cast both Dell and myself a confused look. 
I had nothing I wanted to say there and then, and Dell frankly looked distracted. He rested his hand on his right knee, and I suspected he was in serious pain. I asked Hockner, who sat alone in the third row of seats behind us, to rummage for my bag. Though I still had my rifle with me, the rest of the stuff was back there, including the med kit. I dug through it and found a strong nerve block. Here, I told him. No, I'm fine, he protested stoically, stupidly. But I just peeled it from its backing strip and put it around his head. He fussed a bit, but Carmi told him to quit it. You think it's broken? I asked, nodding to the knee as I fit the analgesic in place. I don't know. I can walk fairly well, but bending it is difficult. This is helping. Thank you, Ejok. We're headed to a safe house outside of town, Small announced. It should be okay to rest there for a few hours. Assuming we can get to it at all, I put in. They must be combing the countryside by now. The tall man shrugged in a careless fashion. Smith confirmed the route with her boss, then turned us onto a back road that he announced was normally untrafficked and unguarded. I doubted this day was normal, but held my tongue for a change. We took it slowly. This part of the operation was quite wearisome and nerve-wracking. The back roads were, indeed, mostly deserted. While on a large avenue we had to traverse for a few blocks, though, Smith pulled us to the curb with a head-snapping lurch. A brace of military ground cars were rounding a corner. We all ducked down, and they just rolled by. By using an emergency fire lane inside the fence line of another big refractory, all pipes and shadows, we found a wide, silent loading zone. It was at the very northern edge of town and had egress to a dirt road. Small assured us that this would lead out into the rolling countryside, so we followed it around the corner of a short ancillary building. Sure enough, it continued off into the darkness and woods, but the blond man in front cursed aloud when he saw the surprisingly large checkpoint assigned to it. There were two armored transports, one of which was air-capable. A wide area on both sides of the road had been cleared of trees and shrubs and set up for extended bivouac. An auto gun sat in a sturdy mounting nearby. Fifteen troops or more had been milling about without any great haste when we suddenly appeared. They saw us when we saw them. Smith stopped short in surprise. The robot gun instantly swerved our way, and two spotlights from the transport stabbed out like the tines of a fork. Small swore again in yet another language I didn't know, and Hockner, in the seat behind me, shuffled about quickly, like he was reaching for something that might get us all killed. Wait until we're closer, his boss commanded quietly, who nodded at his other teammate to drive forward. We couldn't turn back without drawing suspicion, and the autogun at least could riddle the bus before we got anywhere that mattered. Every soldier had a rifle ready, and one of them called commandingly, waving us forward. Sitting directly behind Smith, I leaned up and spoke into her ear. How fast can you crack that autogun? Invert the targeting params. She barely glanced at it as she eased us along. Thirty-five seconds. Can't do it with soldiers in my face, though. 
I'll get you the time, I promised. When we were up to the roadblock, uniformed men and women surrounded us on both sides. Ejak, don't, Carmi muttered, or started to anyway because I opened the door and stepped out, then slammed it quickly and angrily behind me. Okay, who's in charge here? I shouted, then stepped into the face of the closest soldier. He was a young guy, though not a kid. He took a half step back and leveled his rifle. He declared something that was probably in order to back off, but I just looked at the next one. A young girl, likely still in her teens. She actually pushed forward and hit me across the chest with the butt of her rifle. I went with it, bouncing off the car clownishly with oofs and cries, swaying like a drunk. Who do you think you are? I'll sue each and every person here. Another guy, this one with sleeve stripes, ran forward and butted me as well, but in the stomach and hard. I went down then and he had his rifle barrel in my face. He wasn't a kid, he wasn't cowed, and he wasn't fooled. He knew I was bluffing, stalling, and he shouted, in English, queuing off of me, I guess, at the people in the car to get out, now. Small made a slow show of complying, stepping out with hands raised. But one of the soldiers on his side must have spotted a gun or something through the windows because she raised an alarm that made all of them hop forward with weapons pointed and itching. Show your hands, the officer shouted. Everyone, out of the car, show your hands. They grabbed Small, spun him around, and threw him up against the van, while I got a boot that snapped my head back with a burst of stars and black pain. I rolled over. The mud of the dirt road was freezing and freezing on me. And then I heard a noise, a mechanical spitting sound, shouts, ricochets, screams, shooting, shooting. But that was all far away, out on a choppy sea. I raised my head to look, and the world bobbed up and down. Someone tripped over my feet, his chest doing an odd fuff-fuff thing as he fell, his uniform ripping right open. More shouts, running, another scream, now from somewhere near. One of the young soldiers was crawling by on her hands and knees. She reached the rear of the van and crouched there out of direct sight and sighting of the auto gun. Smith opened her door rather leisurely, heedless of the robot's bullets whizzing by. She had her pistol out and walked right past me. She shot the girl in her neck, taking her time, I thought, or maybe that was just the boot to my head, then shot her twice more in the chest when she fell back. A loud, chunky, sizzling sound leaped forth then, along with a mechanical cough like a gap-toothed buzzsaw cutting concrete. It came from somewhere off to the side where I couldn't see. Smith disappeared, ducking and running off, while the autogun fell silent as if cowed or slain. At the same time, the armored air car began revving its turbines. Its chain gun screamed again, and armor glass from the van sprayed everywhere in crystalline rain. I found my feet, though I still saw the world through a sick wobble, and clawed at my door. The seats were empty, the opposite door open. 
Glass bits, upholstery, and plastic chunks littered the inside. My rifle was on the floor, and I grabbed it, rolling away just as the buzzsaw spoke to the van again. That whine was now a roar, and the car's telltale tornado was hitting a peak. Through dust and smoke, the phantom shape began to rise off the ground. I selected the ape rounds, held down the safety with my thumb, and pointed my panther at the blurred metal beast climbing into the air. Before I could squeeze the trigger, though, a fast, bright streak flew into the snow and flying slush from off to the left. It was followed by another, 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 coming as points of light with a piercing whistle. They hit the armored vehicle square on the side with four hard thumps. Light flashed from an open hatch in the top, but there were no explosions loud enough to be heard over the fans. Immediately, though, the machine began wobbling in place. Only ten meters up, it dipped, nose first towards the ground, then corkscrewed over twice. It smacked our van broadside and flung it off to the right, then came down hard into the dirt of the country road. Engines still roaring, the air car sluiced across semi-frozen mud, maybe 40 meters, until it plowed into that low outbuilding of the factory. Half buried by collapsed fiber sheet and roofing, it didn't move thereafter, though the fans kept running crazily with a screech that hurt my teeth. The checkpoint was a disaster. Small fires burned here and there, while soldiers lay everywhere, some moaning and crying, but most of them silent. Moving through the smoke, several figures stepped warily, and I rose to my feet. Small silhouette was easy to make out, as were those of his people. Carmi kneeled near a figure sitting on the ground, which I took to be Dell. Someone else was standing too, further back, moving from behind a pile of smoldering junk. This one had a rifle that centered on Alan Small's back. I shouted and fired. A tree some 50 meters away exploded and collapsed. But before that, both Smith and Hockner shot together, and the soldier just dropped back into the smoke. I stumbled over to my crewmates, while Small and his people moved off in another direction, assessing and looking for other threats. Carmi's face was blanched, her deep black eyes wide with shock, her gray-black dreadlocks falling into a wild tangle about her face as she stood. But she was steady on her feet, which was more than I could say, and she held Dell's hand while he stood with a grimace. Knee gave out, he explained simply. I turned slowly, surveying the scene. Our van, at least fifteen soldiers, an armored air car, and an advanced AIM military autogun smuggled across light years of space, all down, all ruined and dead. Yet Griselda's children, Small and his people, we were all alive. It seemed impossible, crazy, even ridiculous. The crashed air car was still loud, but it sounded more like a death rattle now, rapidly dropping in pitch from a whine to a growl. The other military vehicle, the armored ground car, had been mostly untouched, and it started up with a noisy engine rush. 
Smith had gotten in and cracked it as easily as the robot while we had been commiserating. I could see her small frame in the driver's seat through the open door. If it had had floor pedals for control, the short woman wouldn't have been able to reach them. It turned out to use the same two-stick system as the civilian cars, though, and she eased it out from under some surrounding debris with confidence. Come on, Small yelled as he climbed aboard. Hockner tossed down that compact, multi-chambered rocket pack they'd all been trading off between them. It was a disposable unit, I guess, because he just left it behind with all the other junk and scrambled up to the second row of seats in the cab. Dell was able to hobble fairly well once balanced, and we stepped over to the aft troop compartment. A young man with sleeve stripes lay on his back upon the rear steps, head first, helmet in the mud, feet still inside, eyes staring heedlessly at the dark sky. His blood dripped onto the ground from several autogun wounds to the torso. Carmi held her mouth in horror while I dragged the guy out of the truck and rolled him off to the side. He was surprisingly heavy, and I wrenched my back a bit. Then I helped Dell up the steps and into a seat. Carmi hadn't followed, and I went out to fetch her. She stared at the man on the ground, who was now face down. The exit wounds in his back were clearly visible. We have to go, Carmi! She still didn't move. Captain Maynard, ma'am! That brought her out of her nightmare. She just nodded, and we both climbed in. We're good, I shouted to the others up front as I pulled in the folding stairs, then slammed the door closed. With a fast, bouncing jerk, we were off. Not that I'm complaining, I put forth. But this truck must be linked into their asset tracking system. They'll see us wherever we go. I had seated myself near a sliding grate that separated the front cab from the larger rear compartment. No, they won't, Smith replied, never taking her eyes off the rutted and jouncy mud track. Bypassed? Wow, fast work. And hey, you saved our butts back there and no mistake. Great job. She just nodded, but then added lowly, You had a good idea. If we're handing out compliments, Small offered, then good job, everyone. Thanks especially, Ejok, for taking down that tree. He almost got me. This produced rare laughs out of Smith and Hockner. Small's bland drollery was perfectly timed and smooth as butter. A calculated thing... His mocking broke the tension and eased all our combat-frazzled nerves, while yet helping to maintain distance between his team and Griselda's. Wheels I still couldn't see were turning even now, and I grew quiet in my thoughts. Small must have figured I was pissed off because he followed up his little joke with several minutes of compliments about my quick thinking and bravery then added a few more through the grill to Carmi and Dell. The flattery was more insulting than the ribbing had been, but I took a page from Smith's book and just nodded. There was a background process I needed to check, so I opened up my wrist comp. 
the algorithm for image matching had run its course and come up empty. I started it over again now that planetary net coverage had returned. If need be, it could download hundreds of millions of picturesque mountain stills from public nets and subnets. On a more populated world, there could have been a reasonable expectation of success over time. But even if my device got to assess all the images available out there, it was unlikely that even a fraction of the possible angles and shadow variations of each and every mountaintop on a world as sparsely populated as Barlow had even been captured, let alone cataloged, let alone made freely available. I had no idea how long this next try at the process would take, but I likewise had no other leads. The transport had ration packs aboard, which was good for me, not having eaten since my post-celebratory Nabon. There were some pocket-style foods in wrappers and, surprisingly, a bunch of homemade lunches in a cooler. Between all six of us, we ate most of it. There was a case of bottled beverages, too, indicating that the uniformed soldiers, all of whom had been wearing a box star patch, had been given decent supplies. Another sign of the intentional disparity, elitism of another stripe certainly, between the common rebels and the proper army. Smith had been moving us along with scary, swaying breakneck speed over increasingly rough dirt tracks. We soon came to what appeared to be an infrequented service depot and small had her stop. Basically just a metal roof over a concrete slab with pillars at the corners to support it, it struck me as no better camouflage than just parking the transport out in the open. But the fake newsman had another idea. There was a large, moldering pile of cast-off packing crates under it, and we spent a frantic few minutes piling these up along the one side of the vehicle facing the road. Anyone driving by would just see the usual mound of trash under there, while the roof itself would foil visual searches from the air. Thermal scans would be another story, but the weather was turning crappy again, with more overcast on the horizon, and it seemed wise, all things considered, to just sit and trust our luck for a couple hours. This was no safe house and Small admitted that the real location he'd been hoping for would be impossible to reach now. The transport had a comm unit that the tall man monitored. Our firefight had been discovered, and an organized posse was in pursuit. Within an hour, just after we'd finished our shipping crate art project, a fast-moving unit of armored ground cars barreled past the depot on the dirt road trailing whatever crack assault team, suspected on the open channel to be a pocket of loyalist troops, had decimated the checkpoint. Air cars providing vertical cover for the unit could be heard passing overhead as well, though the rusted roof hid them from our sight. The dirt road only went for two kilometers more before dumping right onto a paved highway and the comm chatter indicated that blockades were being coordinated with other units somewhere in that direction. When no sign of us was found, they would likely spread their forces, with some doubling back and some fanning off the highway in a wide grid search. At least that's what Small stated they'd do, and I didn't doubt him. 
For that matter, he seemed to predict all their movements, almost to the unit, before they were announced over the channel, and his prescience was unsettling. We sit tight, he said finally, and wait for them to head back to town. Why would they do that? I queried. Because if they see no sign of us right away, they'll assume we were actually entering the city, not leaving it. There aren't enough forces to check both options simultaneously, so they'll have to be linear about it. All we have is a facade of boxes here, I said after a bit. It might not fool them twice. True. Let's pile up more, he replied with his bright grin and climbed out to do exactly that. The rest of us followed, save for Dell, whom Carmi ordered to stay still. He was stretched out on a bench in the rear cab, under emergency blankets, his boots neatly off and to the side. Another nerve block seemed to help with the deep throbbing that had started up after his spill back at the checkpoint, but it only did so much. We worked quickly, dragging more soggy boxes and broken bins made from a hard cellulose material. We piled them against the truck and sent Hockner out into the drizzle several times to assess the job we were doing from a distance. Small glanced my way thoughtfully now and then, so I waited. Sure enough, the guy cornered me as we were stacking junk. The others were hastily dragging boxes and pallets from hither and yon, so we were momentarily alone. Events have progressed rather obliquely, wouldn't you say? He asked rhetorically. What's next? I mean, you have the ideas, Ejok. You have the clues I need. That means you're the boss. He spoke in a clear, precise whisper, helping me lift an unwieldy crate. He stopped just as it was over our heads, his height and strength making me stretch up on tiptoes, putting me off balance. We both held it there. My arms were wobbling noticeably, his not so much, and we locked eyes. The man's normally bright blue gaze was steely gray in the dimness and strikingly fierce. He was as serious as a statue of war, and he did his level best to stare me down. He couldn't have known it, but my tolerance for that kind of masculine dominance garbage was exactly zero. I let go of the crate suddenly and with a little push, throwing him off balance. He lost his grip, and it crashed down behind him as he ducked involuntarily to avoid a conking. That high noon gunfighter face was gone now, replaced with pure fury, pure hate. It would have been unnerving once, but right then, Mr. Small was just living up to his name. Let's clarify something. I stated evenly. I have an orbital transport up to Griselda in the works, and there's a place for everyone, just like we agreed. This is a very good thing for you, Mr. Small, since you lost your ride. That must have been such a nasty surprise. The anger drained off at once, and his eyes grew wide in honest shock. My apologies, but I was desperate. I continued, my tone and tempo unchanged. I'm ready to help you achieve your goal, whatever it is, but my major concern is getting us off this rock. I don't, therefore, have time for your games. 
He was too close to me, and I was watching far too carefully for him to hide the effort it took to don his mask of charm at that moment. He managed it, but he was sweating that bright smile and easy shrug, and frankly, I doubted he had many more of the darn things left at this stage of the game. I'm a reasonable man, Ejok. It's your show. I just shook my head and grabbed up a different crate, smaller this time. I threw it a little wildly, so it bumped off a corner of the truck and fell back down. No one who ever says that to me really means it. So understand this. You have nothing more I want, while I have something you desperately do. Veiled threats, alpha dog staring contests, or any other crap like that will leave you and your people stranded. So don't go there. Nerves are shot and time is short. Are we still talking? His face was unchanged, but all the same, the smile had somehow fled. He nodded for me to go on. Okay, now that we've established that our priorities differ, which was never news, we need to put our heads together. Am I right in believing that President Billings has what you're after? Not the one down in the bunker. I don't think the Blues have dug that patsy out even yet. The real one. He didn't hesitate now, having instantly decided, I think, that inter-party conflict was indeed against his interests. Ho ho, fast on his feet, that guy. No, Billings doesn't have it, he stated firmly. We need to find Finance Minister DeLay Moharn. Bending over to try that same crate once again, I heaved and tossed. It fell back down again, and I swore at it before going on. Maharn herself? Then he actually does have it, because I was trailing him through her. What do you mean? I mean they're lovers. They're together right now, most likely. Find one, you find them both. I didn't see it change, but his expression was somewhere between logical calculation and... I don't know. A quiet thing. Hard and shiny. Anticipation? Fury? Glee? He replied, The entire planet is looking for presidents right now. Do you have anywhere to start? No exact coordinates yet, but it's a place in the mountains. I think she might own it. I may have something soon, though, and... I trailed off because Alan Small had looked down and started shaking his head. Then he glanced back up ruefully, a slight seemingly genuine and possibly even embarrassed smile on his face. Nettle best. Of course, the hunting lodge. Sescatatordio. You've heard of it? Yes. The finance minister kept it a secret for privacy's sake, but a few knew about it. He chuckled. I take it then you can find the place. That I can. Oh, it's obvious now you mention it. He cast another of his bright, happy, appraising gazes at me. How do you manage it, Ejok? You just keep surprising me. It's only an idea, I responded. Could be a waste of time. Maybe, but it's a lead. The best one yet. Carmi passed by just then, and I imagined her clouded expression reflected a captain's irritation over slow workers. 
I tried that darned crate again and managed to land it at last, teetering on top of the pile. Is it far? It may as well be, he said thinking. The mountains north of town. If we could take the highway, it would just be a few hours' drive. As it stands, we'll have to go cross-country. In this truck, that could eat up half a day. Can we steal an air car? Faster is better. He blinked a bit at that before answering. There are six of us, plus our equipment. We'd need a big one. It's too risky. We'd have to return to town for something like that. Then we better get started soon. I agree. And we picked up the big crate again, this time free of drama, to place it carefully and easily on the pile. A wave of returning forces rolled along about half an hour later, cursory spotlights from the road weaving hastily over our pile for just one thrilling moment. Then they raced on, goaded by the terror of a phantom special ops team, on the loose and with a mission within their newly won city. When we were alone again, Hannah Smith back the transport out from under that drape of rotten crates, scattering our hard work heedlessly and with a clatter. Pointing the truck towards a line of foothills I could only see on the map, she moved us out across scrub plains and gullies with kidney-rattling speed. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.